Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, July 20th, 2012. I got to tell you, it's not a light edition again, but we're only dealing with one topic. (laughs) When it's a light edition, I usually hand it off to somebody else, but today I'm uh, firmly in the saddle. tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, weird ideas, concocted, bizarre stories, things like that. We What we do is we slow down, open up our Bible, and look at things in context to see how that all shakes out. Now, yesterday on uh, Fighting for the Faith, I uh, gave my personal two cents. That's what we named the program, by the way. Uh, Roseboro's two cents on the book, The Harbinger. And uh, prior to yesterday's program, I had a a telephone conversation with the author, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn, and uh, and I promised him that I would give him the opportunity to uh, come on the program and interact with the things that I had said on uh, yesterday's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, I just got off the phone with him and uh, recorded, uh, pre-recorded today's edition of Fighting for the Faith with my interview with him. Fantastic conversation. I asked him good, tough theological questions. And I think you're going to – I'll let you decide what you think of his answers. In fact, what we're going to do – is um, I, in just a minute, I'm going to queue up the interview I did with uh, Rabbi Khan and uh, and then play it out. And then what I'll do is I'm not going to provide the analysis. I would like you all to provide the analysis. I asked him questions regarding whether or not he's a prophet. I asked him questions pertaining to his hermeneutics and his use of Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, and he, he even pointed out that the, the questions that I asked him were intelligent and they were questions he had not been asked before, and so he appreciated uh, the toughness, the and and the spirit in which I delivered them. And so it was a great, great conversation, and one that I'm very excited to share with you. So what we're going to do, just so you know how this today's edition is going to work out, I'm going to go ahead in just a second and pl- uh, start playing the interview. We will take a break midway through on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. There's no. Uh, commercial break in yesterday's edition, and then uh, after the break, we'll continue with uh, the um, 
the interview, and then I'll, I'll I'll throw it open to you guys and uh, and let you all you know send me your emails. Let me know what you think uh, because I think it's a fascinating topic, and I have something I'm trying to get to, and I think I get to it in in my conversation with uh, with Rabbi Khan, and it, I, I got to it yesterday. I got to it today, and so it was a good conversation, and uh, and so you know the question is. I'm going to let the listeners of Fighting for the Faith provide the analysis. And that means you're going to have to listen with the sermon. You're going to have to go, okay, okay, you know, here's what I thought of this or that or the other thing, and then send me your emails. And uh, you can email me at talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. That's talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. If you really want me to consider your, your email, your response, your analysis, for reading here at Fighting for the Faith, I need you to email it to me because it would easily get you know lost in the pile of conversations that take place on my Facebook wall. So, you know, that's what we need you to do. All right. So without any further ado, here is my interview with Rabbi Jonathan Kahn. All right. On the line, I have uh, Jonathan Kahn. He is uh, New York Times bestselling author of the book The Harbinger. He is the rabbi and uh, senior pastor of the Jerusalem Center, also known as Beth Israel in Wayne, New Jersey. And he's also the president of Hope of the World Ministries. Uh, uh, Rabbi Khan, uh, mashlam ha. Tov, it's good to be with you. Yeah, tov, tov, yeah. All right. So, okay, so there's been a lot of controversy regarding your book. And uh, and then uh, you and I talked yesterday before I went on the air. And uh, it, it, I found the conversation to be helpful and amicable. And I promised you that I would I would offer some uh, critique that was you know, brotherly in nature. And so, mm-hmm. did, did you have an opportunity to listen to yesterday's edition of Fighting for the yeah, Faith? Yeah, most of it. Yes. Okay. Yes, and I, I as we were just talking before, I found that you're. I mean, of course, we're going to have we're gonna have differences, but the thing is, you know, I, I found the way you handled it, I respected it. Actually, um, you know, we can talk about some things that have been said, but I, I you know, I found it to be your, you know, I found your take to be intelligent and respectful and you know just very you know i appreciate the way you you do that I, you did it you know. well i i appreciate the your appreciation well let, let me see if i can like yeah I, i've got a couple of questions i've you know, loaded up here i don't i don't know if we're going to get to all of them but you know i wanted to see if we can kind of start the conversation and kind of you know since i interacted with what you said yesterday you know let i let's kind of get a couple of things cleared up as I look at the critiques that are being, you know, leveled against you on the internet and blogs and other places, one of the charges is is that uh, people basically said that you're a false prophet. Now, let me ask you straight up: Are you a prophet? I don't consider myself a prophet. I guess I would say a watchman. Okay, so you consider yourself a watchman. You don't consider yourself a prophet. So the no. the word of the Lord hasn't come to you, and you don't have a word of the Lord to share with us. Well. The- Harbinger is not based on a, a personal or, well, a special revelation. Um, it is based, I mean, I believe that the Lord leads all of us in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in reading the Word and in giving insight into the Word. I believe the Lord does that with all believers, you know. Um, as far as, but the Harbinger is not resting on, you know, it, uh, me saying this came to me, you know, and, and yesterday when you, uh, you mentioned or you played the clip when I, when I was being asked how did this come, and I'm sharing how that came, how I was led to these scriptures, and how then I saw these things. But that is, you know, that is, and you said that's subjective, which it absolutely is, but that's not what the Harbinger is based on. In fact, I will only 
generally share that if someone asks me that. But that's, the harbinger is based on the parallels between what is happening now and what happened to ancient Israel, which is not a matter – I mean, you, can, you know, people can have their opinions, but it's not a matter of subjective revelation. Okay. Now, on the program yesterday, I, I, I also played uh, where Sid Roth was you know, basically taking your book and putting it into the realm of the prophetic. But I also read something from Jim Baker's uh, website where he says the prophets are coming – and you know, and and by implication, your name is first on the list. You know, you're you're now Prophet Rabbi Jonathan Kahn. So since you're you don't claim to be a, a prophet, let me ask you: Have you taken any steps or measures uh, to you know clear up the record where these TV hosts have erroneously uh, promoted you, you know, using prophetic status? Well, I've I, when I've uh, at certain well, I've seen first of all uh, there there are things that that. Uh, was going to go out and said, uh, I think it was promotion, that he predicted this and this, and, you know, and people can argue something based on a teaching that paralleled something. But I said, you know, I told them not to run, not to do that. Um, that I've been, and a few other, there have been a few other instances like that. As far as, you know, re, I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't, when this first I heard of it, when you told me about what was said on Jim Baker, I mean, what was said on the website, I don't go over all that. I haven't, you know, and there have been times in an interview someone says something like that, and I did not, you know, get into a debate at the time. I could talk to them afterwards. Maybe I should say, you know, I have a way of doing that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, there are times I say, say certain things that I don't agree with, and I, you know, kind of just reframe it and go to another, you know, I, I go on another thing, but I don't agree with it. Um, so maybe I have to figure out how to, how to, um, you know, I can nicely say that or something, you know, but, you know, that has happened where various things have been said on, on, you know, interviews. I mean, I'm just saying it may be little things, too, where I don't necessarily agree, but I don't get into a debate with them necessarily unless it's an outright thing. I, I kind of go along with, try, I mean, with trying to get the message out that I'm saying, but maybe I should figure out a way of, you know, not, you know a nice way of, of saying something. Yeah, I, I, well, considering the fact that there's so many crazy things being said religiously or about God or about Christianity, and, and there's a lot of false doctrine out there, and a lot of people claiming prophetic status for themselves, I think um, that it, if you know, with the message that you're trying to bring, credibility is going to be important. And I think there's a whole group of people that immediately, if somebody's being promoted as a prophet, um, you know, they're immediately going to, you know, that, well, the Bible says to test the prophet. So, you know, if, if yeah. there's prophet in front of your name, immediately we've got to put you over in this special category, and now we've got to test really everything that's coming out of your mouth before we can grant you prophet status. I mean, that's just biblically what we're commanded yeah, to do. And I, yeah, and I, and I would not do that. And I, I, again, I, have, I understand what you're saying, and, I, and it's probably and it's wisdom. I don't, again, call myself this. I've never put a title. I, I get very weary when people do put that title um, you know, in front of them. I, I don't, I, you know, I think one has to be very careful with all this stuff. And so, you know, maybe I just have to figure out a way of, you know, and, and I mean, if someone says it, I will answer, and, I, and I've always have, you know, but it's just that, you know, sometimes in the midst of, you know, someone talking on the air, you know, to get it, I don't get into a, you know, I don't stop at every point, uh, nor do I necessarily agree with it. I go on with what I'm saying, but maybe, again, there's a way to do that. Right, yeah. I, and so, I mean, it, I personally, I, I, I'm kind of new to the fight. I mean, I've, you know, the reality is, is that several of my listeners have said, Chris, when are you going to weigh in on the Harbinger? And it's like, the what? <laughs> And so, you know, as I stepped into this and kind of, you know, know, take a look at what's been going on, I thought that was kind of interesting just in the sense that, uh, you know, I I understand I've heard you on other programs make it clear that you don't claim to be a prophet. The issue is, is that there are people out there promoting you as such. And I think that's creating some of the problem as far as the controversy is concerned. You're you're probably right. And I I mean, 
you know, and just as it's on one hand, it's hard to I spend so much time now trying just responding to misconceptions. You know, I spend I, I think much of my days have been on this right now. Um, that you know, I can't. I you know, I, I on one hand, I can't get to everything. I just can't. You know, there's so much said on so much of so and off the wall stuff. I mean, from every side. Right. You know? Um, but I think I think I have to you know sit down and figure out a way that at least when I'm you know being and if I'm asked again I will always say 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 that but a way to you know come in and kind of you know you know redirect this you know in a way that you know can make it clear right you know and then there are people who have their views regardless I'm just saying you know people will hmm. view well you are you know and people will view okay that means it's false and but you know you're right it's a point it's a it's a good point okay now I've read the book okay and it's a quick read it's not it you know, it doesn't take long to read I mean yeah and well I read pretty fast anyway but you know, that's a survival technique I learned when I was in college and doing my master's degree but um okay so I read the book it's clearly a work of fiction um, so here's kind of the question. Do you think that some of the controversy surrounding the book may be caused by your claim that 90% of it is nonfiction? And what I mean by that is this, is that you're clearly using a literary narrative in order to, you know, kind of carry a bigger message. And so, I, 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 for lack of a better way of putting it, I, I liken this to like the, the Dan Brown Da Vinci Code effect. That uh, you know, the, the, there's already the question of how do we how do we categorize this book of yours? Is it fiction, nonfiction, or is it fictional nonfiction? What, hey, how, you know, it, the, already there's some confusion because I, I it's clear there's historical facts in there. You're trying to uh, work with the biblical text, make some parallels between uh, you know recent uh, history in the United States and ancient Israel regarding a pattern of judgment. And so you know, the the question is is that you know. How how are we to figure out where fiction ends and and uh, and nonfiction begins? Considering you know the the, uh, the measurement that you've been using is like a ninety ten measurement. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and that, and it's yeah. I haven't done you know a mathematical study of it. I'm I'm saying what I believe. Um, yeah. Well, well, I, there are ways to do it. First of all, I, you said do you think it's it, the problem is because it, you say you know, speak of the nonfiction. It, the problem could, I think with with some of the critics may be because of a confusion of the the fictional part. Originally, I wrote it straight out. I wrote it nonfiction. There was no story, nothing. I only after a certain point changed the format and put it to make it easier to basically deliver or communicate to people. You know, there's a lot of heavy things and there's a lot of connections and it is a fast read. But you know, the reason was to to be able to communicate to people, and especially the unsaved people, um, who might not take up, uh, you know, something on, you know, biblical, her, you know, uh, hermeneutics, mm -hmm. um, you know, so that was the reason for it. And some, and so, you know, if to say that, how do you distinguish the line? It, to me, it's real clear, and that is that the, the narrative, the story, is fiction. The story of a man uh, named Noriel, another man named the Prophet, who's revealing these things. Mm -hmm. But what is communicated about Israel and America, that is part of the teaching. And so okay. that part is the is the is the nonfiction part. So it's all framed. So you know when when and people have you know I've heard critics say you know it means that this came from a dream because there's a dream mentioned in the fig. But that's part of the story. It's the it's the content of the teaching that is the real part, and the other part is the narrative. Okay, so you're you, <laughs> just to make the record clear here, uh, you didn't receive this via special revelation in a prophetic dream that you then wrote down, and it became the harbinger. No, any more, you know, and, and again, to make that clear, there's one, 
uh, chapter where one of the ways that something comes is the man has a dream, and then it is it becomes you know the person speaks about of the teaching of it. But that's it. So, but that's part of the story of it. So, mm-hmm. no, it is it is the way I, I shared. You know, I was praying and I was led to scriptures and seeing what was happening. It's basically seeing what the events, what is happening in America, and the parallel in what happened with Israel. So, uh, maybe would a fair way to classify the book maybe is a parable that employs. In some, yeah, in some, I think in some ways. I mean, I think that it. it the, let me put it this way: it's you know the framework is fictional. The, you know that's the kind of like the vessel or the delivery system. What is communi- It is there though to communicate teaching and parallels and the you know this this uh, you know the, the parallel between America and Israel. Um, so yes, you could a parable does that in that it is the framework is fiction or story and it's communicating a spiritual truth. Um, some people call it instructive fiction. You know, but the, basically the heart of it is, is not fiction. The framework is. Okay. So what it, it's it's a vessel that is it's like a glass that's pouring out something. Right. I, I I see it as rabbinic. I mean, but that's just because I've been in touch with rabbinic literature before. Okay. So let, let me have a, a kind of a follow up question then. Okay. A little tougher sure. question. When I researched this, you know, I thought, you know, I'm going to pull up my commentaries. I've got a pretty good library, and I've also got some uh, good rabbinic material in the Talmud and other things like that. And so you know, what I found is is that no biblical scholar that I was able to find, or no, and this includes either Christian or Jewish, um, that I've been able to find, has ever counted up nine signs or omens or harbingers uh, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 10. So the question is, are the harbingers a literary device that you employed to help unfold the main point of the book, that the 9-11 attacks, the stock market crash seven years later, and that the war in Iraq are part of a cycle of God's judgment against the United States? What I would say is the seals are a literary literary device. Um, the harbingers, you could say, is an organizing principle, and that is, you know, someone someone can look at, you know, a situation, and I mean, you know, uh, here we're going to identify five <clears throat> five signs in this. Say, say, or put it another way, say they're looking at Deuteronomy twenty-eight, and they and they're saying here we're identifying ten signs of a nation in, you know, danger in defiance of God. Uh-huh. Someone else may come up with 12, you know, but, you know, it, it, it's basically how you organize this, you know, so I would call it an organizing principle. So it's an organizing principle to really kind of help, you know, can, you know, get people to think about past history and, and consider it in light of you know, God's judgment. Yeah, yeah, okay, what I would say is that it's not, it's not simply a device. I believe there are signs, I mean, of, of a, for instance, again, you can look at, let's say we're doing a study of Israel's um, apostasy from God, right? And you can look at several different signs, and well, again, one person might have ten, one person may have twenty. Um, the signs are all real. I mean, if they're doing it accurately, you know. And, and what I'm identifying in Isaiah nine ten are specifics of Isaiah nine ten that are there or that are surrounding the context. So they are all there. Whether someone might say there are, you know, I can find eleven, I can find five, you know, that's. That's, I think, that can be equally valid, but they are there, but how many, you know, you can divide up, it kind of depends on how one one looks at it, but, you know, there is a tree, there is a this, and there is that, but someone could come up with other signs, you know. Okay, all right, so I, I, I understand your, your, your point. Okay, let me ask just a follow-up question to that. Now, I've heard you in other interviews strongly deny the the assertion that your book claims that the United States is in a uh, covenantal relationship with God. Um, that's similar to Israel's covenantal relationship. 
However, when I've read when I read the book, uh, I noted the fact yesterday on the program that in chapter three, chapter three, you draw a really tight parallel between the United States and Israel. And so uh, here's my question. How would like the average reader who really isn't familiar with biblical hermeneutics and some of the subtler nuances of, of this particular doctrine or idea uh, not come to the conclusion that the United States is in a covenant with God, considering that the harbinger, it really, it assumes it, 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 it implies it, uh, that the parallel exists, and and really for the, the story to work, you kind of have to make the logical leap that somehow God took up the the, 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 the you know the Puritans and the uh, the pilgrims up on their dedication of the nation to God. Okay, a, a few things. One is well, let me let me do uh, one is that um, I would disagree with one thing there and that is the it doesn't need that to work and the, the reason the reason being i understand the you know i understand the the uh, the um, you know the perception of it but the, the thing is i when i shared the harbinger when i saw these parallels it wasn't based on the fact that there has to be something between israel and god i, I mean between america and israel uh, as far as covenant mm-hmm. um, i never even shared that you know in in much of when i was sharing the the harbinger um, or sharing the teachings before it became a book I just didn't do that, and and very often, you know, I think it's very rare that I even share that unless you know, and share anything about that unless that comes up for some reason. I will, you know, um, so you know, it could be even a uh, another nation could get signs that are on a biblical template. You could even, uh, you know, conceivably have a Muslim nation that gets signs that are yet you see something in the Bible. Um, so that is not it's not dependent on that. However, however, the reason why I bring it up um, that there is there is a parallel, is that, um, you know, there is, I believe there is something special about America, but I don't believe it, it is Israel. And, um, and, you know, and the other thing is that I clearly, you know, don't believe that God has made a covenant with America, um, you know, he initiated anything, or that, you know, that there's any, that, that you, one can even talk in the same, well, can compare the fact that Israel was given a Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, you know, a new covenant, and then that to everybody, um, to compare with what I'm saying about America. What I do say is that it is of note that America, um, you know, by its founders, and by that I'm speaking of the Puritan founders, they dedicated America to God at its foundation. Um, they set it, you know, for His will, and there's, you know, um, and they and they did believe they were in covenant with God. Um, I do say I go that far, but then and but then, you know, beyond that, the the point is that here we're dealing with the same template of. America in its apostasy from God, mm-hmm. um, I, I, you know, and it's it's you know that there are many parallels with it, with Israel, how it's turned away, how it was founded on on you know biblical foundations, and it's turned away from that in many of the same ways, and that now I'm saying there are the same signs that were given to ancient Israel, so the same pattern of apostasy and the same pattern of of warning um, that it is striking that this is this is to a nation or, or I believe speaking to a nation which was founded after the pattern of Israel and to be a new Israel. So that is the that is the overarching point of of doing that. Now, you you mentioned it and I think you you said it accurately. Um do, you know, I mean to one point I leave it open. We talked about this I guess yesterday. Mm-hmm. I do leave it open that could God can God could God have honored this initial dedication of America to God. I leave that as an open question. Could he have blessed it as it was purposed for these things? Yes, I believe he could have. Um I believe, you know, I believe, you know, there are many believe that as well that there are things that are blessed as much as we have 
you know, blessed Israel as much as, you know, many other things, uh, spread the gospel. Um, but we are not Israel, you know, but I believe that God can speak to a nation that has had so many um, links to Israel uh, in using the pattern of Israel. And I believe that he could do that with a nation that didn't have as many links. Okay. So, okay, I, I, I understand your position, you know, and so the, the idea here is, is that, you know, it's, it's help you, because one of the things that, that comes up is the language regarding returning to God. And so that if you're going to return to God, that assumes that you were at one point walking with God. And, and, and so immediately, you know, I get a little bit nervous because I see a lot of people who take this concept of America, you know, being a special nation and they take it to its ultimate extreme to the point where, um, it, 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 you know, it really gets the focus off of Christ and the gospel and instead somehow makes it so that our blessings here in the United States are not given to us as a gift by grace through faith because we've been brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ, but because we as a nation are more moral than others. And so what happens is, is I see it as a confusion of law and gospel. And I don't know if you heard the end of the program yesterday, but the, what I tried to do was you know, kind of work with the category of judgment here because I see the church as, having, as being in true covenantal relationship with God through the blood of the new covenant, you know, through Christ. And so the idea being this is that if we were to look at like a pattern of judgment, um, I think it's probably more beneficial in, in the, in the long run as, as the conversation goes to look where there truly is a covenant. I believe that even though I'm a Gentile believer, according to Paul, what he wrote, I've been grafted into Israel. So I am in a covenantal relationship with God. So when we look at the visible church. You know, I see it. The, I see the visible church as the horse, and the and the nation itself as the cart being pulled by the horse. And because the church itself is in full blown apostasy and tolerating whacked out, crazy teachers like Word of Faith teachers like Ken Copeland, uh, Joyce Meyer. Uh, you know, we're getting really strange Bible teaching from uh, people like Rick Warren, Joel Osteen, and others. That as the church has tanked and not proclaimed sound doctrine and the biblical gospel, uh, what's happened is, is the church has stopped being salt and light in the darkness of the American context, and as a result of it, we're not having people being converted to Christianity, brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ. Instead, the pagans are having their paganism go unchecked because the church isn't doing its job. I think that might be a better context to discuss these things. Well, one of the things, you know, goes along right along with the harbinger that it ultimately says, you know, that, that revival and, all, and all, the whole issue with this is, is linked is God's people. Now, you know, and secondly, then going further than that, it goes to personal salvation, which is the ultimate point. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you know, at the same time, you know, God does judge nations. You know, and he, you know, that is clear in the Bible, and he does judge it. And with with America, there's been, you know, there's been an, you know, you're right, but there's been an intertwining from the beginning. There were, you know, there were the foundation. There were, you know, Bible believing, um, passionate Bible believers who founded mm-hmm. this nation. You know, and so there has been something. You know, can God bless the nation? And and as you said, the cart pulling the horse. Can some of the can the blessings come also from God from these things that are done by God's people? Yes. Yes, and that's why, again, you know, you know, I mean, you know, there is a relationship between the cart and the horse, um, but you know, the cart is first, and that is actually said in, in the Harbinger as well. Um, but I believe it affects world history. I mean, what happens to America is a very still important in God's sight, you know, and you know, there is this, there is this thing that was running from its foundation, which were at that point were believers. I mean, we've gone far off from that, and I would just say also that. 
you know, yes, there's false teaching, and there's many reasons. I mean, there is, you know, you mentioned it, it's mentioned in the Harbinger, there, you know, 55 million children have been killed mm-hmm. in America. Um, we embrace abominations and increasingly, increasingly do this. Um, and I believe there is, you know, there, there is judgment for these. I mean, I think most believers believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the ultimate, but the ultimate answer, the, you know, comes from the gospel. Right. Exactly. Because it's only the gospel that's able to take our our pagan neighbors who are dead in trespasses and sins and committing these egregious sins and bring the, b- raise them to life again. You know, they're, de- they're born dead in trespasses and sins, raise them to life, cause them to be born again, and so that they bear fruit in keeping with that repentance, setting, having been set free from their sin, from death, from the devil, and are now set free to do good works uh, uh, for their neighbor. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay. I agree. I mean, you know, and again, there's two, I mean, I agree, and that's the ultimate issue. Um, you know, again, the, but does God judge nations? He does, and I think, you know, there's been this relationship with America, with the gospel back and forth, and, and rebellion and secularism back and forth, um, and then there is this foundation that stated all these things, you know, um, and, you know, I believe God, let me put it this way, I believe all, God can use also the, you know, the language of Israel and the, you know, and the pattern of Israel to speak to such a nation. Mm-hmm. No, I I completely agree. I mean, you know, there's a reason why God, the Holy Spirit, caused all of these uh, different portions of Scripture to be written. It's for our, our, our edification, growth, and righteousness, and other things. Yeah. All right, so uh, here's an, you know kind of another question that I brought up yesterday. Um, in your retelling of the account of God's judgment of the Northern Kingdom um, in chapter three of the book, you claimed that they, that would be the Northern Kingdom, had no clue what was about to befall them. Now I pointed this out yesterday that in chap however in chapter 8 of uh, of Isaiah's uh, prophecy God specifically tells Isaiah to warn the northern kingdom of the attack of the king of of Assyria and this warning was to be written on a large stone tablet it was to be confirmed by two other witnesses Uriah and Zechariah and even Isaiah's infant son was named as a prophetic testimony against the northern kingdom and their iniquities and so I think that that's the fuller context of this pattern. And so is there, is there a particular reason why you left the fuller context out of your book? Um, okay, well, let me, let me – <laughs> by the way, I want to say something. You know, I found when I was listening to you yesterday and, and, and today, you know, it, it's, it's more – because I've dealt with a lot of stuff, but it's, it's of the more intelligent things. And this, this thing is actually what you're bringing up has never even come up, um, and I'm glad it does. A few things. I, I differ with you on that. Um, that is not – I mean, not the, the overall facts. Um, I, the, the, basically, the premise that everybody in the Northern Kingdom knew what was happening and knew what, knew what they were doing and knew what was coming. Um, Isaiah, you know, first of all, I mean, a few things, and we can. Isaiah was primarily speaking. In, he, Isaiah is in Judah and is in the south. Um, it is questionable how many people, even in the south, were listening to Isaiah. Um, the, you know, there are signs he is called to do, as Ezekiel was called to do here, and you know, and he speaks, and actually, he's primarily he primarily speaks of Judah. He mentions. Israel as well, and says things about that, um, and, and clearly speaks about the Assyrians, which also spills over to Judah. Um, and you know, so but the, but the question being, did, did most of the the people of Israel were they most of them listening to Isaiah even, or, or you know, question do they even know of Isaiah? I mean, I, and I'm I'm just throwing this out. You know, there's no uh, there's no um, you know there's there's thousands and thousands of people scattered throughout Israel. Did they were they getting Isaiah's prophecy when he wrote this on a tablet and where he had this there? This is a sign from the Lord that what the Lord said is going to come true. Um, how many people even of Judah were listening to it? So I would I would differ with you on that. 
Um, not that there was a word given. Clearly, clearly there were words given. And, and in fact, in the Harbinger, it says that, you know, it says that they were warned. You know, mm-hmm. and it wasn't only Isaiah. There were other prophets who warned them of what was coming. Isaiah was contemporary, you know, contemporary, contemporary with this and the situation. How far this word spread, I would question that very much. I would, uh, my, and, and, and again, the northern kingdom was a pagan, basically a pagan kingdom. You know, and one had turned to Baal and had right. turned to, to uh, you know, the golden calf. How much they were, anybody was listening to Isaiah, I, have a, I, would, have, I would have a strong question about. So I, I don't believe that most of them knew that, and yet, I mean, you knew the specifics of what Isaiah was saying. However, um, I would say also, I would say there's a larger context, you know, a macro contract here, that, uh, that they still had a knowledge that they were, you know, of... of you know that their history they were originally founded by God and there was Abraham and there was the Mosaic covenant and mm-hmm. there was the Torah and they knew that they had broken away from that i mean because you know in Judah at least some were still following so they knew that so what i would say is that still in in what they did i don't believe believe most people knew the specifics um but but never but they still were in defiance of God um number 1 that sin is in defiance of God number 2 that they did have a context there that their nation was had rejected the Torah had rejected God um the God of Israel and you know and what i would say is you know in that sense you know i would say that's the same in in america in uh, you know and that that Amer- even though you know america is rapidly departing from god his ways and yet is there a sense I mean, uh, is there a deep sense that we, that, I mean, do most people not know that we are going fast away from the ways of the Bible? There is a sense of that, mm-hmm. even among unbelievers. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of that. You know, when we embrace homosexuality, do, we, do they not know that that was, they're going away from what we had, to, biblical values? Of course they know it. So what I would say is that there's a general spirit of defiance. Um, in, a, in Israel and in America, and and I don't know, like when it, when when they say you know the bricks have fallen, um, and we will rebuild it. Right there, it doesn't say okay. There's not a mention of God in that context, but the underlying context is that that there is a defiance. So so I first of all, by the way, I'm blessed to get points that I've never heard before, and that I think are intelligent and good. Um, I mean, I, they, I, it's valid to, to bring it up, but I believe that they, the, the truth is that they, most of them were not listening to Isaiah, um, and most of them who are rebuilding were and not at all, but that there was a general spirit of defiance in the northern kingdom, a pagan kingdom, and that there's a general spirit of defiance in America, and not for the people who said these things in the harbingers when this is, when I write this down, that this is, you know, a, a replaying of it, that they knew what they were doing consciously, but that there what there is a spirit of defiance in America, and it, it has you know since 9/11 we've gone much farther away from God in defiance. Okay, uh, so you know, let me you know kind of sum this up. So it, it, it's clear that the text in uh, Isaiah chapter eight that God wants him to uh, write down on a large stone tablet. He's got two other reliable written witnesses: Uriah yep. the priest and Zechariah the son of uh, Jeberechiah, to attest for uh, the Lord. And yep. and then we also have uh, Isaiah's infant son, who is called Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, uh, which is a you know again a you know prophetic name at yes. this point. Swift so is the booty. okay, so it's clear that it, regardless of how many people in the northern kingdom knew of these signs, that God Himself though had given a clear warning that the uh, the wealth of Samaria was going to be carried away before the king of uh, before by the king of uh, Assyria, and He had clearly warned them ahead of time. Well, I would, you know, and again, you know, the the ultimate issue uh, is that, you know, was there a prophecy given? Absolutely, and, and again, there's, Chris, there's been more prophecies than that that mm-hmm. were given. Um, so the the ultimate thing is, I mean, the question there, though, in dealing with defiance, 
conscious defiance or or a general spirit of defiance, and that that's where the issue would go to this. And I would say is I mean, is those several things that I do not believe that most people in the Northern Kingdom were listening to Isaiah or even heard this. You know, and you know the fact that you know God gave things to Ezekiel and gave witnesses, and and it's testifying that God said it before it happened, and and it's there, and this is on record that and he does that, and that happens throughout the you know the prophetic record. But as far as the people of of this pagan now this pagan nation of Israel in the north knowing what Isaiah said I don't believe most of them knew that at all I mean, I'm telling you I don't believe they did and you know and that when they said we're going to rebuild that it was in response to Isaiah but simply that we're going to continue in our defiant course um, you know, which is you know an overall spirit of defiance, which had been which had been infusing that nation from the beginning, and so I don't so so you know uh, so again I agree obviously that there was a word given, but do I believe that they were responding to that word when they're you know later on? No, I don't believe that. I don't I don't believe there was you know uh, that they were listening to Isaiah. Okay, or that most people knew it. Okay, we're gonna pause my conversation with Rabbi Khan right there, and we're gonna pay some bills. So. If you'd like to email me your feedback or your analysis of today's conversation with Rabbi Khan, you can contact me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Otherwise, you can send me a tweet at, at, at Pirate Christian on Twitter or follow me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. We will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build a God certificate from a fellow co worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then. Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. 
God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. C could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. Yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. Yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lax comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century! Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts! Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. <coughs> You'll laugh. <laughs> You'll scream. <coughs> and you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm off to buy it right now. Get back here! We're not done yet! Max Holiday's Birdcage Shooter, The Budget Cuts Part 2. Disapproved of by heretics everywhere. Get it before they do. We're back. Warning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. It happens all the time. Especially if they're not giving you the gospel. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. Did you know that we're in the second half of our bake sale for the summer to help us get through the lean, mean, financially thin summer months? Well, it's true. And if you haven't seen the T-shirt that uh, Pastor Daniel Price of Trinity uh, Church of Northwest Arkansas designed and, and made for us, for you, the viewers, uh, viewers, listeners of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Well, then you got to see this thing. Go to piratechristianradio.com. Not Fighting for the Faith, but piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale. And you will see the awesome, amazing T-shirt that uh, that was gifted to us by Pastor Price, which you can purchase for a simple $19.95. That includes shipping and handling. So if you don't already have uh, this, this T-shirt, well, get onto the website and buy one. Trust me, you would be excited to wear it. So, and, uh, and thank you for the support. Of course, if you'd like to, you know, to support us by joining our crew or sending in a, a contribution. You can click on the Join Our Crew button and sign up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And Or you can click on the Donate button if you'd like to specify the amount or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 460. All right, we're going to continue with my uh, interview uh, conversation that I had earlier today with Rabbi Jonathan Kahn and, uh, regarding the book The Harbinger, and so here we go. 
Okay. okay, now you make a point in the book of pointing out that uh, when uh, Senator uh, Tom Daschle gave his speech the day after 9-11 and then three years later when uh, John Edwards gave his speech, that they, you know, because this took place in the Capitol, that this was a, this was a formal response from the, the leaders of the people, that, you know, that you know, they were invoking this, uh, this vow of defiance by, you know, by – you got to admit, though, <laughs> quick, quick aside – it's absolutely ridiculous that these guys were quoting that verse positively. Yeah, yeah. bizarre. It's, eerie. It, yeah. Exactly. It's all of that. I, I have to admit, as I as I go through that, it's just, oh, that is just, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, okay. But, you, and this is kind of a follow-up to this, though, that, that, that these guys, even though unknowing, you know, they were they were invoking this, this curse that they thought was a blessing – um, you know, by, by misquoting this verse, but you make a point of pointing out that this was done by the leadership. Now, I would argue that because in chapter seven, Isaiah and King Ahaz of Samaria have a, you know, you know, where God sends him and says, you know, ask for a sign, and and Ahaz asks, asks all pious, oh, I'm not going to do that, right? Okay, that yeah. Ahaz, at least as the king of um, the northern kingdom, is fully aware of of you know this you know, this impending doom because Isaiah told him specifically whether or not the commoners or the majority of the commoners in the northern kingdom knew of these prophecies. I think we can argue based on chapter seven, at least the king of Assyria himself, I mean, of of the northern kingdom, Ahaz, did know. Ahaz, uh, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Oh, that was Judah. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a big difference. Yeah, you're right. No, uh, you're no. Yeah. But you're right. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. Okay, I appreciate that. Yeah, and, and, and remember that Isaiah was also primarily speaking to Judah, and he said there's a sign for Judah. And Judah is involved in all these events, and some of it's encouragement to Judah, saying that it's going to sweep over, you know, the northern kingdom, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's going to come to them too, but God's going to save them out of it. Okay, so the point I'm, I'm trying to make in all of this is that, you know, at, we do have a very specific warning from God from the prophets. And, and you could even argue it goes all the way back to prophet Moses in Deuteronomy 28, where the curses of the uh, of the Mosaic Covenant are laid out should Israel choose to depart from uh, the Lord. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, yes. Okay. Yes. And I, I would say, and so what I would say is that, again, there's an... There is a general sense, I mean, and, and that's about as far as I believe it, it went with the Northern Kingdom. Again, just to keep in mind, they are, they are not worshipping God in the Northern Kingdom. They're, I mean, the majority are worshipping Baal or other gods and idols, mm-hmm. and that's one of the reasons the judgment came. And yet there is a sense, they, have, they know that they have broken away from what the Southern Kingdom is still adhering to, mm-hmm. which is the Torah and the ways of God, and they've rejected it. And I would say that that is similar to America. Okay, so you'd say that's similar to America. Now... Personally, and then the fact that it's a general, you know, sense of defiance. Right. Okay. Now, personally, I think the, the the fact that God did give specific warnings through Isaiah, whether or not Isaiah had a good publicist or not, is kind <laughs> kind of beside the point. But because God did specifically warn that the the attack by the Assyrians was going to be a judgment, that 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 tempers it makes it it makes the defiance that we see in Isaiah nine ten that much more specifically directed towards God. Whereas when we come to the American context, of, you know, post nine eleven, that that spirit of defiance that you bring up in the book, I, I my question is, I I just don't see it as qualitatively the same thing. I think the defiance that the United States demonstrated was a defiance towards the terrorists, not a well, defiance I, towards God. Yeah, well, 
I, again, I mean, it, you know, and then it's going to what was the conscious intention um, and what was the defiance? The conscious was it conscious? Was it or was it you know was it defiance at all? Um, I am sure that first of all, with Syria, you know, you know, with the verse there, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't give a. Uh, a direct allusion to say we are defying God, yet they clearly are. You know, and, and whether were they saying it to defy God, uh, that's a question. But it clearly it, it's in defiance of God. It says that you know the context says in they say in arrogance and mm-hmm. pride, you know, of heart. You know, and so here they're, they're saying we're going to rebuild. Now, were they also defying the Assyrians? I'm sure they were. You know, the Assyrians came and swept over. Mm-hmm. Were, how much of them were believing in God? I mean, again, this is the Northern Kingdom. Um, so yet I still wouldn't say you know this is a spirit of defiance, and that's what. You know, and the other thing is that at the same time, you know, uh, this is you know the Assyrian, the Northern Kingdom would end up defying the Assyrian Kingdom again, and which would lead to its destruction. Mm-hmm. Now, did they know at every point we're defying God? And the and the other, the, I mean, they were, but did they know that consciously? You know, and the other, the, and I would say the same with America. I think if you ask most believers, you know, is America in defiance of God over well over all oh, the yeah. culture? I would say, yeah. You know, is it consciously? It's questionable. You know, um, but it is still there, and so. You know, the, the other thing is that, you know, if they knew for sure, you know, they believed that we're going to get judged by God, would they be saying we're going to come back stronger than ever? You know, you know that's what they're saying. We're going to come back stronger than before. Mm-hmm. Well, are they really believing that? You know, so, so that, so, you know, I believe that, you know, it, it, you know, it, in both cases, you know, the general, the general thing is, the both cases that I, I believe there, it was a general spirit of defiance and arrogance and pride, and the nation saying, we're, you know, with Israel, saying we're going to rise up, and here God has, you know, humbled them, and we're going to rise up stronger than ever based on our own efforts, you know, our own abilities, you know, from our strength, we're going to undo this thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that was where the pride and the arrogance, which is ultimately a defiance of God. How much did they know, you know, how much was conscious? I don't know that. It says, though, that it was an arrogance and pride. Right, and the, what one of the things I like about the way you you, you at least are, are really tying in Israel's story there is that God was leaving them really with two choices, either repent, which is really what he wanted them to do because he keeps holding out these prophecies of grace and mercy and assuring them of his forgiveness. But then uh, you know, but they, ultimately he wants them to repent. And when they don't repent, he, he leave, they, they, they kind of force God's hand in judgment. Yeah, and that, and, that, and if you read on from Isaiah nine ten, it goes into the the the, the, the subsequent context where God is saying basically that's it, you know, and they're not turning back, and they're not turning back, and His hand is still outstretched, and you know this is this is the the whole thing. God could have just judged them right away. Mm-hmm. The, the doing it this way is is a shaking, is a calling, which ultimately you know you know a severe mercy, but it's mercy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so all right, let me let me ask you the, then kind of a, the, this uh, another follow up question regarding the pattern of judgment. Um, one of the things I noted is is that in your interview with ChristianBook.com, dot com, the, the gal that you had interviewed with, you had yeah. made an allusion to the fact that this pattern uh, may have been repeated when Judah ultimately was judged because it follows in the footsteps of uh, of the Northern Kingdom before they you know they're they're sent off into uh, into into Babylon. So. So if we're going to see this as a pattern of judgment, uh, have you made a case that Judah went through the same pattern of judgment that uh, was laid out here in the northern kingdom, these same harbingers? How how did they play out with Judah? And then how, did they actually play out then when Israel itself was removed from the uh, the land by uh, the, Roman the Roman Empire in the, in 70 AD? Yeah, um, what I'm what I'm uh, speaking at speaking to at that point is the first the first part of the judgment. 
Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain that. I didn't go. I haven't gone into or, or you know, I haven't searched for or seen that there is, uh, you know, the, the thing with the non-harbingers um, regarding the case of Judah or anything like that. I don't know that. Um, you know, I can't speak on it. But what I'm speaking here is the first harbinger, the breach, that there is before the nation's destruction, there is an attack or a strike on the land that is allowed or sent by God. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a shaking, that is a, you know, breaking of borders, and it's kind of a, and it's a shadow of what's going to happen if the nation does not turn back to God. And so that happens in the case of the Northern Kingdom in 732 B.C., which we were, we're speaking about, the first strike of Assyria, you know, years before the destruction, I mean, a certain amount of years before it. Um, with with the case of Judah, it happens with, it's not going to be Assyria, it's going to be Babylon. Mm-hmm. And Babylon's going to destroy them in, five, I mean, they're going to be destroyed in 586 B.C., but before that, there's a strike on the land, the same pattern. 605 B.C., there's a strike, Babylon comes in, and that's when they first take away the first captives. You know, it's kind of a shadow of the captivity, and it's a warning. And it, again, goes back to the mercy of God, that he's not just judging, he's giving a warning, he's giving a foreshadow, he's, there's, and the strike in this case. Um, with, with 70 A.D., I don't know, there, you know, there is, an int- there is something, you know, and in, in to say that, you know, and without going into the details, there there is a you know the Lord said when you see Jerusalem surrounded, you know, like like there's going to be a time period. There was there was a you know, and I'm not making the really making the argument, but um, there is a thing where there, the Roman armies were surrounding, and there was there was a time period, and there was a withdrawal, and there was another one there, you know. But I'm not making this case, but there is there is something I have to look into that. Um, and I'm not saying though it has to be at every case and every every situation. I'm simply saying that it is a pattern. That you can see with Judah, I think very clearly, and then you know, leading to the harbinger is we have nine eleven, and mm-hmm. so that that's that's the link. Okay, so you know, you, you know, at this point, you haven't found a, a gazette stone re- regarding uh, Judah or a sycamore no, I, cedar, you know, no. and some of the other harbingers that you point no. out in the book. No, and I haven't been looking for it, but I haven't found it. But I haven't been looking. Um, no, I'm referring to the overall. The overall, which is the the initial strike, the initial wake up call, the initial early warning or foreshadow, a strike on the land, both in the, the judgment of Israel and the judgment of Judah. Okay, let me let me ask. This is an aside question. I don't I did not write this one down. But this is one of those ones where it's like I would like somebody to intelligently lay this theology out for me. What you talk about how God supposedly had lifted the hedge of protection that was over the northern kingdom. Okay. And when I look at the history of Israel, especially coming in, you know, f- through the book of uh, Joshua and then into the book of Judges, you see, I mean, right away, you have this pattern of Israel rebelling against God and God selling them into uh, slavery to, uh, you know, to other nations, you know, the, you know, the Philistines and others. And so, you know, they're, they're you know, they're in the fight with Moab and then with, you know, with the, the Philistines and stuff like that. And so my question is, where do you, where do you theologically come up with the concept of God lifting the hedge of protection because it's I didn't see it mentioned in Isaiah 8 or 9 or uh, you know so I it, it's it's kind of it just seems foreign a foreign thing to kind of just drop out of the sky into uh in, into a, a an exegesis of uh, Isaiah 9 Okay well you know I think I mean in some ways it may be how one frames something if you say that I mean you, you know you made the point you know, is it God sending, God is sending this in, or God is allowing it? I mean, and, you know, and you can, you know, or both, you know, you know, if he, if he allows a strike on the land, or he, you know, and he's allowing the Assyrians to come in, um, is that, 
you know, and to say is that not removing the protection he had around Israel, you know, I think some of it is how one's how one will frame a theological concept of how God works in the world, um, and yet God does, you know, speak when he, when he speaks of the nation, he speaks of. Um, I'll give you an example, right? In Isaiah 5, we talk about leading up, um, when he speaks about the song of the vineyard, he says, I will remove its hedge, mm-hmm. and it will be destroyed. Right. At the same time, he says, I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I mean, and you have, right there, you have Hebrew parallelism, mm-hmm. you know, and, and where the, the one is, is echoing the other, and yet in the first one, it says, I will remove its hedge. It sounds passive, and it will be destroyed. The second one, which echoes that, says, I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I don't, I don't, to me, it's not a, you know, I, I don't think, see it as a, as a um, you know, distinct issue in, in that one can say in both ways, just as, he, just as it said here in Isaiah chapter 5. Okay. All right. That, fair, good answer. I, that was one just more out of curiosity. Okay, let me, I, I want to give you kind of a parallel to the, uh, the concept of the harbingers that you bring up. And one of the things I find theologically challenging when we're dealing with omens or harbingers, um, let me give you an example of one that I, that I would point to that's outside of the context of everything you've written in your book. Uh, a few years ago, the uh, ELCA, which is the, uh, the heretical Lutheran sect that carries the name Lutheran here in the United States, and uh, you, know, you know, a few years ago, they had their big annual convention in the city of Minnesota, and that at that convention, that was the convention where they voted, uh, you know, and and the vote was to approve, and uh, basically welcome practicing unrepentant homosexuals as uh, as pastors and priests within their uh, within their denomination. Okay, and what was very interesting is that while they were taking that vote, while they were actually voting to ordain practicing homosexuals, a tornado, this is absolute history, you can look this up, a tornado formed over the city of Minneapolis and literally went down the street and and hit the church across the street from the convention center and overturned all of the the outdoor booths that they had set up for the ELCA convention. Made you know, and what was interesting is is that the ELCA church across the street from the convention hall where this was taking place, the cross on the top of the spire of the church there literally the tornado left it on the spire, but it was hanging upside down when it was all done. Caused you know, mm. you know, kind of surface. Uh, wow. Yeah, and you know, as a believer, I look at that and go, hmm, that's kind of interesting. Now, what happened at the time is that John Piper, he's a famous evangelical yeah, preacher. Sure. He, on his blog, basically declared that that was a judgment from God, okay? And when he made that assertion, there was a whole bunch of liberal, uh, you know, Christians, in quotes, who were scoffing and mocking him for drawing that connection. How can you prove such a thing? If that's really the case, if you're going to blame every tornado on God, then how come, you know, how come God doesn't send tornadoes to knock this church out or that, you know, that kind of stuff? They were really mocking and scoffing. And so here's the theological challenge that I find with these things. As I read your book, um, I thought you made a, um, a, a circumstantial case that in, you know, f- some of the stuff just really wasn't compelling to me. The one I found to be the most interesting was the, where you draw the connection between Wall Street's uh, you know, changing of the interest rate 
um, you know, and Elu uh, on the 29th, and then seven years to the day later, uh, the stock market crashed, and the crash was, you know, literally 777 points. Now, I, you, you look at something like that, and you go, you know, the 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 chances of that just being a coincidence are not that high, okay? Just the same way, you know, that while the ELCA is voting to ordain practicing homosexuals, a tornado strikes downtown Minneapolis and overturns the, you know, literally turns the cross upside down at the ELCA church across the street. You sit there, you go, you know, seriously, what are the chances of something like that happening? And so here's what I find is the theological challenge when it comes to things like this. And that is, is that they're interesting. Some people find them more compelling than others, but ultimately... It's it 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 doesn't really stand up to absolute scrutiny when you look at it. It's it's more along the lines of something along the lines of if you're already a Christian and you're already thinking this way and you already believe that Christ is ascended and sits at the right hand of God the Father and is currently ruling and reigning from heaven, that something like this happens and you sit there and go, yeah, that's just like a little sign or proof that you know really Christ is the one in control. But for somebody who's not a believer, that's not really our best foot forward because I find there's a lot of people who get distracted by things like this. I would point to the entire prophecy subculture in Christianity. I see it as a complete waste of time and resources, and they're trying to figure out, the, you know, crack all these Bible codes rather than going and preaching the gospel and making disciples and baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, <laughs> it's a lot, and it's it's. And well taken. Uh, a few things. One is, well, first from going backwards, um, the the point of the harbinger is to preach the gospel, and it is. You and know, you do again, that, as, as you noted. I mean, it's all leading up to that. You know, that's the first thing. Um, and sometimes there are there are things that people have to consider in being shaken to also consider certain things that are happening that God can be warning behind it. It leads to the gospel, um, and that is the presenting of it. Um, secondly, as far as you know, as far as saying that you know, if the people already have a framework that is biblical, you know, but if they don't, they won't even you know respond. What I would say is, in the case of, of the harbinger, and of course, listen, everybody has their opinion, and I, and I can, and I can, you know, uh, you know, I can respect someone saying, well, I find this compelling, I find this more compelling or less. No, that's 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 legitimate, um, you know. But the thing is that that people who are not saved, we're watching many unsaved people um, who are reading it and who are who are coming to the very thing, you know, that whoa, well, I didn't realize that, or this happened, or this, you know, you just alluded to something, you know, that this happened. So there is evidences for it. Now, with any evidence, I mean, just like you said with prophecy, you know, you can argue, you know, you can argue statistics, you can argue all that stuff, but that doesn't mean we don't present it. And the, the other thing is that, that it is, what I would just say is that, that it is definitely not only compelling to people who are believers, but unbelievers. I mean, look at Amazon, you know, you know who, are, who are saying, whoa, whoa, you know, God can be speaking in this thing. So that's one thing. As far as, you know, the, the issue of when there's a calamity, does that mean, and, some, and people say immediately, okay, that's God judging that or this? Yeah, that, that's, you know, that's fraught with, with dangers because, you know, it, if someone says that every calamity is God saying this, I, I, you know, obviously I have a problem, that's not what the Harbinger is saying. Um, or that any, any, every blessing means, or every good thing that happens means mm-hmm. that God is saying this. Not necessarily, you know. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that it's completely devoid that we can, we, that there's no relationship between things that happen in the world and, you know, and the will of God or the, or the communication of God, just like in our lives. He can communicate to us through what's happening in our life, you know, uh, you know, inconsistent, I mean, consistent with the word. Um, what I would say is with the harbingers, and I think why most people, well, at least most that we're getting, we're hearing back from are find it stunning, 
Um, it's not just one thing, and I, I can fully understand if you look at, well, this one, I don't know. I mean, yeah, if it was just one thing or two things, that's one thing. But it, it deals with a consistent, a consistent manifestation. In other words, you know, there's a coincidence that coincidences aren't consistent. The consistency is that it's one after the other and that in every one way or the other, whether one, you know, says, well, I have a problem with this harvest or that, then one way or the other, it's all there, it's all manifested in one form or another, it's consistent, all linked to, all beginning with a 9-11, there's a consistency in, in, in the event, in the theme of it, and then you have, you actually have the leaders of America, actually, I mean leaders in America, very high leaders, actually quoting from this obscure you know, scripture that actually matches up with these other manifestations, that right. all, all, everyone linking it to 9-11 without nobody you know, orchestrating it, trying to make it all happen. So, so it's not just you know something happens, and I, you know, I don't know. I might agree with John Piper. I don't know, but but I mean that's pretty striking. You know, but the thing is that this is not this is a specific pattern with linked to a specific context of a scripture that ties it together, and each thing being this. And again, I mentioned that you mentioned. Um, Tom Daschle, you know, here from the on the Capitol Hill, giving America's response, you know, to to the, what had happened with 9/11, and he says this thing, and I don't think he even knows that what he said was was specifically dealing with the an attack on Israel, you mm-hmm. know, or this first strike, and yet it's that's consistent. He has no idea, and then he mentions the tree, and that's there's actually a tree that he doesn't know it. He mentions the Gazit stone. There's going to be that, you know, and so it's it's not one thing. It's all of them, and it's kind of multiplied by each thing being consistent with this and the larger, you know, the larger context being that, you know, we are, America is, I mean, in, is a nation that is rapidly turning away from God. Um, many people, without knowing anything about the Harbinger, you know, many, many believers, if not most, believed this is a wake-up call, you know, in some way, one, in one form or another. God works through it. So what I would say, what I'd say, Chris, is that it's, yes, if it was just one thing or two things or, you know, or, or there's no context to it. Um, you, but that's not what really, that's, I don't think I would have written anything if that was the case. The other thing is that, you know, when you mentioned, exactly, you, you mentioned the Shemitah before, you know, mm-hmm. and the basic thing that, you know, it's not just once on, the, you know, the greatest crash of the American economy happens on the exact biblical day of the Shemitah when, when, the, when the financial realm of, of Israel, the, the debts were wiped away, credit was wiped away, you know, and you go back seven years and you find the other greatest crash in American history, uh, you know, up to that day on the same exact Hebrew day, down, you know, down to the, you know, and you said, like, what are the odds? And it's true, uh, we've had, there's somebody who's a statistical, did a statistical analysis of just one of those facts, not, not tons of them, you know, and found it to be astronomical. So, you know, that's what I'm presenting, and I'm presenting that, you know, at the same time, you know, you know, can people say whatever they want about any event? Yes. But does that mean that God cannot speak through events, you know, that, you know and such as these? And can, can it be that God is not warning? I mean, or can it be that it's, you know, I'd say, yes, it, it needs to be considered. And um, the other last thing with that, I don't want to take it more, but that, that with, you know, there's, there's some classic Bible commentaries, you know, and very conservative from, from the 19th century, that when they speak of Isaiah 9.10, they speak of it as a template and where God is warning and how he, not just Israel, says, you know, in warning a nation and then it turns away and then, and then a greater thing comes. So even they speak of it, God's warning. And these are very conservative, you know, certainly not charismatic or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So do I believe it needs to be considered? Yes, that's why, that's why I did it. All right. The, the second most important part of your book, by the way, in my opinion, this is just purely Rosebro's opinion, 
was the uh, where you had Nuriel at the uh, at the Abraham Lincoln uh, monument, you know, at the Lincoln Memorial in uh, Washington D.C. And what I thought was interesting is how the prophet pointed out that the words that are there on the wall, um, that even Lincoln understood that what he was experiencing in his time was a judgment from God. And um, I don't think he needed a gazette stone, uh, a sycamore uh, transferred with a cedar or uh, the Shemitah or anything like that. It, it, he, he could see that clearly what was happening was a judgment from God. And where I, you know, what I wrestle with in, and this is a good wrestling, what I wrestle with with the topic that you bring up is how do we strike the proper balance as we look at the events that are unfolding before our eyes, as believers, we understand that there's that God is behind history, that God is you know that Christ literally reigns you know at the right hand of the uh, of of the Father, and so that you know there's there's no such thing as luck, there's no such thing as as coincidence. That God is the one truly who is sovereign and reigns and is control of these things. And so, how do you strike a right balance between? looking at these things and saying, I think God is telling the United States or telling us that we need to repent, that we need to, you know, we need to look again to Christ and be forgiven for our transgressions. For God is merciful and he's kind and he's forgiving. As the psalmist would say, oh Lord, if you kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. So how do we strike that right balance to where we look at the things that are happening and saying, we better pay attention and you know and and rightly use these events to look to drive us back to scriptures and drive us back to Christ and not take a look at these things and then try to crack the next code and get caught up and yeah. y- you understand what i'm saying yes yeah a few things first of all you know uh, you know chris one somebody said well you know we don't need you know somebody to come along with a harbinger and tell us you know that america needs to repent we know it anyway you know amen <laughs> you know it's not i you know, never said that that somebody has to uh, that the harbinger has to be written for people to know that america has to repent i think if anyone is sent, is is following the word of god you know that you know and i think i think most on fire uh you know uh you know uh you know, passionate believers in America know that America is in danger, and that and that that there is a urgent call for repentance. You know, so I, I believe that's absolutely the case. Um, but secondly, you know, it's to to know that it was the harbinger didn't come about by me sitting saying, "Let me crack this code," and you know, the, the next code in the Bible and all that. Not at all. I wasn't looking for anything actually, except that I was praying. You know, after nine eleven, um, and you know the you know so the things it wasn't that I nor was it that I said, "Hey, you know." Look at this verse. Let me see if I can make this verse to go with this. Not at all. I wasn't looking for any verse. Um, I was praying, and actually, when I was, you know, led when I was began to study this, and I was led to immediately to Isaiah nine ten, um, and then I started seeing all these things that were that were happening. I did not even know at that point that 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 very obscure scripture was this very scripture that actually was proclaimed from the, you know, from the Capitol on the day after 9-11, and then three years later linked to 9-11, and, you know, more than, I had no idea of that. I was already led to that scripture without even realizing it, so I wasn't trying to, let me try to get this together with this. Um, so I think that, 
you know, the ultimate thing is that we need to repent anyway. I mean, you know, that is the call of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and if you if you go to the the end, it also says. I mean, the, the ultimate point, as it leads into the call to salvation in the harbinger, is that there's a chapter called eternity. It goes in where it says, listen, whatever happens to a nation, you know, ultimately we are all standing before God's judgment. You know, so that is the universal call. That is the, that it, number one. You have the universal call of the gospel. We have to preach the gospel, and we have to we have to we have to be light, and we have to shine that to the lost. So that's number one. Number two. I, I, there is the principles involved within, with what we are watching in, in, with America's apostasy from God, and I think that's clear regardless of whether one reads the Harbinger or not. Um, but the third thing is that I believe God is also able to speak in a specific way that can be a wake-up call, just like I believe 9-11 was a wake-up call and, and people were flocking to churches you know, in a, in a, for about three weeks. It looked like there could have been, there almost could have been a revival. There wasn't. There was no repentance. And, and mm-hmm. most people did not connect what was happening with 9-11 even though I think most believers felt it, but most of America did not say, you know, hey, there is anything that God's trying to do anything. I, I believe that, you know, there, there, God can speak, and he can also do something specifically, so there's a specific connection um, to link that together, you know, as well. So I don't believe, you know, we need the Bible, to, you know, for salvation. You know, but I believe, you know, the harbinger is saying that, that God is trying to get our attention, and in very specific, eerie, uncanny ways, which only confirms what I what I would hope that most believers would know in their heart, just as Abraham Lincoln did. You know, well, Abraham Lincoln. I'm not speaking about who he was, but Abraham Lincoln. And you know, yet there are probably a lot of people who argued that it wasn't under judgment. So I believe, you know, the, all these things are voices to the same the same end. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you know, to kind of wrap this all up because I gotta I gotta watch your time and mine. Um, Christians can disagree or agree regarding, you know, whether or not you've correctly divined these signs in the harbinger. The, at the end of the day, the, the, the call of the harbinger is for the people in the United States to repent. It, it is a, a call for people to, in the United States to get saved. It is a call, it is a call for um, God's people to, to, also to repent and for revival in that sense. Um, it is a call to salvation, and it is a call saying that no nation can, you know, can spurn God's ways and turn away and still in the end be blessed. And so it is a call to come back to in that sense, but one that, can, that is only operative with God's people, and that's why there's a thing called If My People, and, and uh, you know, that God's people are key, and with salvation. Okay. And I would just piggyback on that and say, church, wake up. Get rid of these false teachers and uh, get back to preaching sound doctrine and preaching the gospel. That would be my call. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. <laughs> so I agree, yeah. Well, uh, Rabbi Khan, I want to uh, thank you for uh, being willing to do the interview. I strove very hard to make it an intelligent one by interacting with what you said and taking a look at the, you know, at the Bible to uh you know to you know basically provide you know some hermeneutical follow up questions regarding uh what you put forward in the book i i found the book to be interesting um and and you know and like i said you know regarding the whole you know tornado cross thing ultimately you know it these are these are the things you could chalk up and go hmm maybe that was the hand of god you know maybe god is saying something here but you can't ever you can't push it too hard because if you know we don't have you know, a, a direct word of the Lord that, you know, the people of the Northern Kingdom did have from Isaiah, you know, thus saith the Lord. And so, yeah, I, w- I would say, you know, I mean, that's true with, you know, and that's true with pro- end-time prophecy.
prophecy and all those things. There are things that we know. Um, I would say, you know, I mean, they're, they're, you know, we have the Word of God is the Word of God, and at the same time, it says to know the signs of the times, and you know, to and so that is what is presented, you know, in the harbinger. I believe it is very uncanny, and you know, and you know, and it, and it and it is. I believe it is a trumpet call with the again the ultimate end of for salvation. Um, and again, I wouldn't have written it if it was just you know one thing. But I believe, and I would just encourage, and I'm not saying this that I don't need to say this, but you know, also for your you know, listeners to check it out for themselves and before the Lord. Um, and, you know, and also the other thing, Chris, I've said it before, and I mean this, this is one of the most intelligent interviews, so it's a joy to do it. Oh. And um, if people want, is it okay to... to oh, yeah, to, sure. Just be, yeah, if you want to get in touch, or just... Um, the, um, the, we're in outside of New York City. It's about 20 minutes, um, you know, north in, in Wayne, New Jersey. It's the Jerusalem Center. On the web, if people do want to get in touch, it's... it's um, we have the harbingerwebsite.com. It has the teachings behind it, the Harbinger, or the harbingerwebsite.org, and there's also Beth Israel, um, there's, there's hopeoftheworld.com or hopeoftheworld.org is our general outreach ministry of the gospel and a compassion project. And of course, they can get the Harbinger anywhere. Yeah, man. Yeah, I've seen it all over the place. Walmart, even. <laughs> well, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't. Yeah. Sur- they carry Joel Osteen stuff. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. We won't go there. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, uh, y'all, shalom, lehitrot. Thank you, Chris. God bless you. Yeah. All right. You too. Shalom. So there it was. What'd you think? Now, like I said at the beginning of the program, I think it would be good to let you, the listeners of Fighting for the Faith, provide the analysis. What did you think of uh, Rabbi Khan's case in his, uh, in his well, handling of the Isaiah 9 chapter? What did you think of his basic premise or what he was pointing out? I would like for you to send me your carefully thought through um, analysis of this interview. And so, if it, like I said, send it to my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And for the subject, write uh, uh, Harbinger Interview Analysis. Just that, make that the, the subject. Harbinger Interview Analysis. Send it my way, and uh, I might read your email uh, here on the air and uh, allow you to provide some of the analysis. What did you think? You know, did you agree, disagree? If you agreed, why? If you disagreed, why? You know, if you sort of kind of agreed... Why? Give, give me not just, well, I agree. No, 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 no. I agreed because, or I disagreed, and here's the reason why. I'd love to get your feedback on this interview. So with that, we're going to sign off. You can send me your feedback at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till Monday. May God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ his vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross for your sins and mine. Amen. Amen.